Well, good evening, everyone. As mentioned, our topic is entitled, Are We Letting Life Circumstances Control Us? And I thought we might begin by asking a question. And you don't need to give the answer out loud. In fact, that's, that's better in this case. Just see what comes up from within when the question is raised. And all I intend to do is to repeat the title of the talk tonight, and then again, see what answer rises up from inside ourselves, okay? Are we ready? So if it helps, close your eyes. And again, just listen and feel within as I ask the following question. Are we letting life's circumstances control us? What is our response, our inner response? Are we letting life's circumstances control us? What do we feel? What thoughts arise when we hear that? Do we know? Does it seem, well, probably so? Or is it more vague? Hmm, am I letting life's circumstances control me? I'm not really sure. Maybe, but it's just kind of fuzzy when I look within. I don't really get a response one way or the other. Or continuing with this exercise, do we feel clear and strong? Yes, life is difficult at times with its many challenges, but I feel in control of myself in control of my life and my daily routine and in my reactions to life circumstances. Okay, we can relax. And uh, that was funny. <laughs> so we'll come back to this later. But in the meantime, let's read a quote from our master so that regardless of the answer, we might get some spiritual comfort or clarity right away, and which also starts to shift the responsibility away from outer conditions and circumstances and places them squarely on ourselves, the protagonist in the story, our story. Our guru said once, remember, you should blame no one but yourself for your troubles. And this itself is a tremendous, liberating, perhaps challenging, but fully empowering thought. And of course, this is nothing more than acknowledging the law of karma in our lives and taking responsibility for our lives. However, if, if that wasn't immediately appealing to all of us, and maybe that I was thinking just, maybe that wasn't the best quote to start out with. But it, it does get better right away. So again, our master said, remember, you should blame no one but yourself for your troubles. But then he added, if you make up your mind that you are going to control your circumstances according to spiritual laws, then by the power of those laws, your circumstances will adjust themselves accordingly. And then he concludes by saying, eventually you must learn to lead a controlled existence. So let's take off from here and see where these thoughts, these truths take us. And the first logical step in this process is to go back to the question that we asked ourselves and to examine a little more carefully where we stand as regards circumstances and control and, and do we even know what that means? And then find out where we might want to go and the steps to get us there. In other words, in the context of our master's teachings, we're talking about the art and science of introspection. And this is how the dense and immense Bhagavad Gita starts out with the simple, clear reminder and exhortation to take stock of our lives. 
And the very first verse of that very first chapter famously begins as follows. Dhritarashtra said, on the holy plain of Kurukshetra, Dharmakshetra Kurukshetra, or as our master said, the psychological and spiritual battlefield. When my offspring and the sons of Pandu had gathered together eager for battle, what did they, O Sanjaya? Now, although our guru said that the dialogue between soul and spirit, or in this case, Arjuna and Krishna, took place against the backdrop of actual events, if we look at the war related in the Mahabharata allegorically, with its spiritual significance and symbology, which, as we know, is the whole joy and poetic intention of the Gita itself, we can start to see a parallel in our own lives as we begin our own spiritual journey and we start to wrestle with the spiritual path and the circumstances and, and that come into our life and karma and changing conditions and so forth. And so looked at from that perspective, on the first day of that famous war, what happened? Between the Pandavas or Pandus, the, our good tendencies leading us back to spirit, and the Kauravas or Kurus, our less than desirable tendencies which keep us embroiled in the show and in the swirl of outer circumstances. Well, on day one of the war, complete disaster. It was a full-on slaughter of our good tendencies. So much so that the core of a king, Duryodhana, who our master said represents king material desire, was delirious with joy and supremely confident that after that very first day, the war would soon be over and that he would be victorious. And on the other side, Yudhishthira, who our master said represents divine calmness, and as a result, soul discrimination, and who was the eldest Pandava brother who the others looked up to. He was so depressed after that first day that he approached Krishna and said, Krishna, look at the devastation in the army. Bhishma, who our master said represents the narrow ego, is indeed terrible. He looks like a tongue of flame licking up the forest which has been dried by the sun in summer. The great Kuru veteran is invincible. In a weak moment, I agreed to fight this war. I realize my foolishness now. I will go back to the forest. I have no right to let all these brethren be killed by Bhishma because of my desire for the kingdom. Krishna, you have been watching this war since morning. Tell me, what should be, what should be done tomorrow? And how did Krishna respond? He said, why should you worry? I am here meaning the guru always present in the chariot of our life with all his help and blessings. And this is why Arjuna chose Krishna over Krishna's armies in the first place when he was given the choice because he knew that greater than the armies, greater than anything else, is that help and blessing of the guru. It's the greatest factor to support our own efforts to attain victory. And then Krishna further pointed out to Yudhishthira all the other great good warrior qualities that were ready to fight and come to his aid and the aid of his brothers. And so Yudhishthira felt a little better and then they all got some rest before the next day's battle. So what happened then on the second day? Well, along with many other divine warriors, Arjuna again rode out and Satyaki was also one of them. 
And Arjuna basically said, enough's enough. So he had Krishna steer his chariot to the place where Bhishma, the ego, was, who again came forth, it said, like a great hurricane. And as the story goes, the fighting was both splendid yet terrible to behold. But the real hero of the day turned out to be Bhima, elder brother to Arjuna, and the darling of the five Pandavas. So again, looking through the lens of allegory and our guru's explanation, Arjuna represents what? Self-control. And in his Gita commentary, our guru says, Arjuna further signifies that vibratory fire element in the lumbar center that bestows the fire force of mental and bodily strength to fight against the vast onslaught of the sense soldiers. And our guru added, it is the reinforcer of good habits and actions, and he calls him the habit trainer. And our master says, it holds the body upright and causes purification of the body and mind and makes deep meditation possible. That self-control is the pillar upon which we build our spiritual life. Now, if that isn't enough, and it's not, Satyaki, or who our master also calls Yuyudana, was also on the field that day. And our guru said, Yuyudana represents devotion, divine devotion, which our guru goes on and says, fights the forces of irreverent disbelief or doubt, which try to dissuade and discourage the aspirant. So just taking these two divine warrior qualities only after the first day's defeat, the spirit within awakens and, and sends out, the rouses self-control and devotion to go and face the ego, to take a stand and try to uh, regain uh, the, the field that day and control over the battle and life's uh, circumstances. So obviously, that's a very powerful duo. But as it said, the hero of that second day was actually Bhima, who our master said represents soul-controlled life force, or prana, in which he said aids the devotee in the practice of the right techniques of pranayama to calm the breath and control the mind and sensory onslaughts, meaning also our techniques of energization exercises, hongsa, om, and kriya. So what was the mood at the end of the second day? Completely reversed. Now it was the Kaurava's turn to be depressed, and in particular Duryodhana, who now realized that the war was not going to end so soon. And worse than that, it said he started to comprehend the truth of his grandfather's words, Bhishma the Ego, who had actually warned him before the war that in the end, it would ultimately not be possible to defeat Arjuna who our master said represents the devotee in us all. Okay, that's a rather quick uh, partial synopsis of the first couple of days. But the point is from there, the battle goes on with its ebbs and flows and twists and turns, just like our life, just like our journey. But Arjuna, who again represents the devotee in all of us, man or woman, young or old, does win, just as we will be victorious as well. 
And because we have within us, waiting to be awakened, those same qualities of self-control, of devotion, combined with the, the power of the techniques our master gave us of pranayama, these three, self-control, devotion, life force control, these are, these are three of the greatest uh, forces that we have or, to come to our defense and against life's circumstances. And, and as we know, our Master's teachings are 100% complete to guide us in developing these qualities and whatever other divine qualities we need along the way. And so the first step as regards our subject is again to take stock, to see where we are honestly, fearlessly, dispassionately, not with the purpose. Introspection isn't for identifying with whatever weaknesses we might find. But just to look at them from what, our, from what our master called the balcony of introspection. Isn't that nice? To, to introspect, to look at ourselves from the balcony of introspection, being somewhat removed from the vantage point of the compassionate soul. And, and it's not just to see, find out our weaknesses only, but to identify our strengths as well, to see, to identify the divine qualities that we have or that might need to be developed further as well. Our master said about introspection, he said, everyone should learn to analyze himself dispassionately. And then he added a practical piece of advice where he instructed, write down your thoughts and aspirations daily. Write down your thoughts and aspirations daily, he said, because it's not enough just to think about what we want to do. Otherwise, maybe like that question that we were asked in the beginning, maybe it just remains a bit vague or nebulous in our mind. But to get down our thoughts and aspirations in front of us so that we can see them clearly and do something about them. And science, modern science, backs up the importance of writing down our thoughts and aspirations, and there have been numerous studies about this. In fact, in the fall 2015 issue of our Self-Realization magazine, we quote one such study about the famous New Year's resolutions that showed of the people who had made resolutions but had not written them down, only 4% had actually followed through on their intentions. But among the group who had written them down, the number jumped to 44% who actually followed through. And this is because, as science explained, when we just think of something, we tend to engage only the right side or hemisphere of our brain, which is our imaginative center. But just the act of writing those thoughts down, we automatically engage the left or logic-based side of our brain, which signals to our consciousness and it says to every cell of our body that we want something and we, we mean to do something about it. It's more than just a thought. And the result is then we're more likely to do something about it. It's one of the most powerful things we can do to reduce the gap between our intention and our action. So again, our guru said, write down your thoughts and aspirations daily. He said, find out what you are, not what you imagine you are, because you want to make yourself what you ought to be. And he ended and said, most people don't change because they don't see their own faults. Most people don't change 
because they don't see their own faults. Although I was, as I was thinking further about this, I thought, you know, we're actually all of us pretty good at this. We've already developed this power of introspection, of seeing faults fairly well. Meaning, ironically, we're all pretty adept at spotting others' faults, <laughs> aren't we? If we, we don't have to close our eyes for that one. So. And our guru himself confirmed this once and said that it is actually fairly easy, he said, to analyze others in this way. But then he added, it is often more difficult to turn the searchlight on oneself. Again, how strange, but how, in the context of our allegory, how Kuru-like. Bhishma, the ego, doesn't like the warrior of introspection. And yet, all we have to do, again, is turn that already present ability on ourselves. So tying up this first important and foundational step of introspection to help us learn to what extent our lives might be controlled by circumstances, our master boils it down and says, be honest with yourself. The world is not honest with you. The world loves hypocrisy. But he said, when you are honest with yourself, you find the road to inner peace. You find the road to inner peace. And I thought, now we're getting somewhere with this subject. Because what do we all feel within when we hear the words inner peace? Those words feel good, don't they? And, and again, we don't have to close our eyes to know. It's just we, those words inner peace. Because intuitively, we realize and long for that safe harbor, that place of permanent inner strength and happiness. So that, that no matter what trials or circumstances life might be throwing at us on the outside, we are at peace and can remain, remain content and feel God's love and support on the inside. And if we step back from our subject for a moment, from the title of our talk, Are We Letting Life Circumstances Control Us? What exactly are we trying to control? Is it the circumstances themselves? Is that even possible or always possible? Or is it about controlling our reaction to those circumstances? And possibly is that where our happiness or peace or security lies? Someone once wrote, I had an interesting lunch sitting next to the Archbishop of Canterbury on Wednesday. He told me a tale of an utterly lonely priest, a poverty-stricken minister, in an utterly unresponsive village with an ill wife and no helpers, who rang his own church bell daily and said his offices and made his meditations, and yet never lost heart. And then the Archbishop quietly added, that is the true evidence of the supernatural. So how do we become supernatural, superheroes? I really wanted to divert there on the, <laughs> on the superheroes, but... Uh, and, and it's interesting, especially in the Second Coming, our Master talks about supermen and superwomen a lot, but uh, that'll be another time, I suppose. But on the subject of, of the attaining this supernatural... Uh, attunement with the divine. 
Our guru shared one of the ways in which Sri Yukteswar helped him learn about mental calmness and one's inner reaction to life and circumstances. He said once, he said, my master Sri Yukteswar's training in this was wonderful. No matter what happened, he accepted no excuse for my becoming mentally ruffled. I used to go to the ashram and sit at his feet to meditate and listen to his wisdom. When the time drew near for me to go to catch my train, he would be aware of my mental restlessness and would just smile at me and say nothing that gave me leave to depart. At first I thought he was very unreasonable. But after a somewhat strained period of this discipline, he explained, I am not grudging your preparing timely to go to the train, but I say there is no need for you to be restless. Why allow nervous excitement to ruffle the mind? You should be naturally calm when you are with me, and when train time comes, calmly get ready to go. And our master added, he made me miss several trains <laughs> until I learned how to be calmly active as well as actively calm. So we get a little glimpse here into the guru's training and how it works at times. Now, this mental detachment, this unruffled state, doesn't mean we don't feel. In fact, in my experience, those who are most spiritually advanced feel even more than we do because they love more than we do. And because those feelings don't overwhelm that love, their inner peace, or their ability to remain calm and feel that inner support regardless of what is facing them. So the question is then, after introspecting, after seeing to what degree we may be controlled by life circumstances, to what degree perhaps they throw us off our center, upset us. What might we do next then to attain that uh, unruffled state of being calmly active and actively calm? And of course, it could be any number of next things depending on our own individual and unique equation. But like with introspection, I chose something that is equally basic but incredibly powerful and also very timely. And that is to study our Guru's teachings every day. And particularly the new edition of the lessons, which again so clearly lays out the goal that we are seeking, the step-by-step -step solutions that our introspection reveals to us that will help us to be victorious in developing the divine qualities we're seeking and to attain our own victory. You know, some years back after some introspection I was doing, uh, it struck me that I, I suddenly realized, oh, I, I haven't been reading or studying Master's teachings like I did or to the degree I did when I first started on the path. And it, and it shook me and I thought, I better do something right away. I wanted to just, what could I do to just get right back on track as soon as possible. And so I was in my room in the ashram and I, I looked on the shelf where I had my books and I, I saw this book, God Alone. And I thought, oh, that'll be great. If you, those of you who are familiar with this, you know that Gyanamata, she, there are these just many different short letters that she wrote to Master or the other disciples. And I thought, oh, that's great. I can just quickly, I don't have to get out the Gita and, and 
get all set up and everything. I, I can just, you know, get, read something quickly, get back on track, and, and feel a little better about myself. So I picked up the book. I, I opened it at random, or so I thought. And, uh, <laughs> and my eyes happened to fall on the following paragraph. And I read, I know you meditate, but do you keep up the practice of spiritual reading? <laughs> no kidding. And I remember, I was remembering when I, I uh, remembered this, and I, was, I thought, oh, I'll bring this, that uh, I remember reading once how our master said that he often said uh, to God, he said, Lord, it's not fair. He said, he said he would tell the Lord many times, Lord, it's not fair. You know all about us, and we don't know anything about you. So... <laughs> So she said uh, uh, to someone else, um, yeah, I wonder who that person was. Yeah, it just says deer in a blank line, so. Okay, I know I have a companion out there somewhere. So. so she said, I know you meditate, but do you keep up the practice of spiritual reading, spiritual study? I consider it very important. Our consciousness does not rise into the spiritual ether unaided. And next to meditation, what help is so effectual as reading with concentration the lives and writings of those saints who have left records of their sufferings and successes on the pathway that leads upward to God? <laughs> this has become a favorite book after that time. So perhaps to save you from a similar embarrassment one day, uh, although a joyous one, obviously, it's heartening, of course, to be reminded. Uh, we get those little whispers from eternity. We realize, oh, we're not alone. It's like our, our master, hello, playmate, I am there. You know, sometimes our master said in the beginning, we, we look or expect, we're, we're looking for some, he said, awe-inspiring vision or some experience like that. And he said, we can miss the subtle divine responses that are present, he said, from the very beginning when we get on the spiritual path. So these are, are, can often be the very dear parts of our day. And that, as was mentioned last evening, that we can bring that then into our meditation. So... I encourage you all likewise to read and regularly study something from our guru, even if just, again, a little bit each day, and as mentioned again in particular, the life-transforming lessons that are now available to us all, and which we're celebrating this year for more than good reason. And I was recalling our brother Bhaktananda, who Brother Jayananda told us about on the opening class on Sunday, who many of you also will fondly remember how he used to, and you might remember how he used to tell us that our guru would often say, everything you need to know to find God is in the lessons. Brother Bhaktananda used to say that. He always told us, study the lessons, study the lessons. And probably because Master uh, impressed this upon his mind and the minds of the others at that time. Everything we need to know to find God is in the lessons. And from those lessons, our guru said this. He said, out of a thousand persons, one seeks the truth behind the strange phenomena of life. And out of a thousand such seekers, 
Perhaps only one goes all the way to the end and finds the infinite. And he said, it is up to you as to whether you want to be a nibbler of the surface truths of these immortal teachings or whether you want to absorb wholly the deeper truths underlying your life and allow them to change and transform you. And he went on and said, whether you have started your quest early or late in life is of little importance. That's worth repeating, I think. Whether you have started your quest early or late in life is of, he said, little importance. I know I've, I've heard this a lot from devotees that, especially if they hear some of us, okay, it happened that I, I, I didn't find Guruji. Guruji found me when I was younger. And, and we often might think, oh, you were so lucky or you found Guruji early. But here he's saying, whether you have started your quest early or late in life is of little importance. He said, it is not always the first initiates on the highway of self-realization who get to the infinite and can claim the kingdom of their father. For often the last become the first. He said, that is the devotee who perseveres and joyously, thirstily pursues this path with zeal to the end can be the first to enter the higher dimensional heaven hidden behind space in the screen of the senses. So where he said, whether you have started your quest early or late in life is of little importance. This ability to change and to gain control over our life, over our inner life and life circumstances is again not, as our master often said, a question of age, but of attitude. And on the subject of aging, I saw something humorous once, but also rather interesting as regards the language we sometimes use to describe the various milestones we reach in life. And it reads as follows. It said, do you realize that the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? And it says, if you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. It goes on and says, you get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or even a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13. <laughs> but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the momentous day of your life, you become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. But then you what? You turn 30. Uh-oh, it says, what happened, just happened there. That sounds discouragingly like a bit of bad milk. He or she turned. What went wrong? Did something change? So you become 21, you turn 30, then you're pushing 40. And then before you know it, you reach 50. But wait, 
All's not lost because you then make it to 60. <laughs> so you become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, and make it to 60. And then it says you've built up so much speed <laughs> that you hit 70. And after, that, and after that milestone, you then get into your 80s. <laughs> Somehow it says you just fall in. And then it says every day after that is itself like a complete cycle. <laughs> you hit lunch. <laughs> you push until 4.30. <laughs> and you reach bedtime. <laughs> But then there's good news ahead. Into the 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Isn't that weird? And finally it says, a really strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. <laughs> Some of you might remember back when Brother Nanamoy uh, gave the opening class once for convocation, and he was acknowledging all the various countries represented and so forth. And then he said how it had just come to his attention that uh, one of the uh, uh, people attending that convocation that year for the very first time was an elderly gentleman who had just turned 90 years old. There's that language. But he had just become or turned or hid or whatever. <laughs> But... Uh, But he found out that, that uh, among those attending convocation that year for the first time was this gentleman who had just turned 90. And in addition to that, he had just enrolled for the lessons. <laughs> Isn't that great? And I remember Brother invited that person to stand. I don't know if any of you remember this. I don't remember how many years back it was. And somewhere out in the vast hall, this beautiful little gentleman stood up. And we all applauded him. And it was just so great. It was so wonderful. Everybody just resoundingly honored this person for just finding the path in Master's teachings at 90 years old. And I thought all this confirms and, and fits in perfectly now with what our guru has to say on the subject of aging. Ready? <laughs> He said, let nobody say that you are finished, all washed up. Why should you give up? Why should you think, I can't change? I am old. I am finished. You can change every day, anytime you want to. And our master said, I have noticed that some people remain the same year after year. I call them psychological antiques. And I've seen others who, no matter what comes, are always filled with ambition, doing something to improve themselves. That is the right kind of living. And he goes on and says, I used to know the elderly wife of a senator. She was a fanatic about liquor, and when her husband died, she threw it all out of the house. And our guru said, this woman was a live wire. And I remember hearing that our master liked this expression, live wire, very much, and especially he liked the type of person that it described. 
And so he said, this woman was a live wire. She exercised regularly, took up dancing, and was very active in useful projects. According to her view, being old was no reason for her to give up all her interests and prepare for death. She kept on this way for quite a few years and remained enthusiastic, healthy, and happy. And our guru said she was no ordinary person, and I very much admired her spirit. And he ended by saying, many people grow old before their time. You don't have to give up just because you're 75 or 80. And given when our guru gave this talk, I would imagine if he were saying it today, he would add 90 to this list. So you don't have to give up just because you're 75 or 80 or 90. Never tell your age, he said, nor let anyone pity you that you are getting old. Keep yourself youthfully erect and alert. Feel young. It is the spirit within that keeps you young. Be enthusiastic. There are lots of young people who are already psychologically old and as good as dead. They have no ambition, no enthusiasm. They don't try to change. And our master concluded and said, you are finished only when you say or think you are. No matter how others judge you, your own decree of defeat is the worst of all. So, how old are we? Hmm? Whether we're 30 or 40, are we young? Even if we're whatever we are? We're, we're not telling? <laughs> so we can ask ourselves again. We, again, won't ask us to close our eyes but isn't it interesting when we do close our eyes? There's no, there's no age, there's no body, there's just our consciousness. And so on the subject then of life circumstances, after introspection, after study of the Guru's teachings, this leads us into our next point, which is meditation. To meditate the best we can, again, with that youthful enthusiasm to try, regardless of our age, to try to make that meditation a little better each day each week, each month, each year of our life, to the end of life. Using the Arjuna of self-control, combined with devotion, while we practice those God-given techniques of pranayama meditation. In fact, as we know, that's the whole purpose of these great techniques that our Master teaches. It's to try to take the energy and consciousness that is just exploding, flowing out through these bodies, through these eyes, through these senses that connect with the world and circumstances and conditions around us. And as a result, we start to identify with our circumstances. We start to feel controlled by them. But the whole purpose of the techniques is to reverse that life force, to reverse that consciousness back into the spine and brain, awaken those higher centers of consciousness so that we know ourselves as a soul where nothing can ever hurt us, nothing can touch us, even if our hearts break, even if we feel pain, because we can't break. Our essence can never break, because we'll then know ourselves as the soul, the transformed ego, the spark, the eternal spark of that infinite, ever-blissful consciousness. It's like Sri Dayamada once said, difficulties there will always be in this world. And I speak from much experience, my dears, but never be dismayed by them. 
Often I, I have said to Divine Mother, I don't care what you send my way. Test my love because I want it to be perfect. But then she added, I must admit though, that sometimes when it seems she goes a little too far, <laughs> I don't pray for that quite so fervently. So the point is, as we know, in addition to that, that childlike trust and relationship she had with the divine, we also know because of her tremendous resolve, her tremendous will and love, that she didn't let those troubling, those difficult uh, circumstances keep her from meditating. Because she realized, as, and as have we or will we, that without that meditation, without some daily meditation, then invariably we will be controlled by life's circumstances. We'll be at the mercy of the changing conditions of life. So summarizing now these points, first is again the power of introspection, then attunement to God and Guru and truth through studying our Guru's teachings followed by the practice of meditation that converts those teachings, converts those words into our own realization. And in time, shifts our attention away from identification with the world around us, with this physical form, as beautiful as it is, but it engages us into that world of change. And that meditation in time then takes our consciousness back to who we really are, that eternal soul. But perhaps the final point to take up tonight is what if our, the question, it begs the question, what if our circumstances are not the, the usual garden variety type, so to speak, but are actually awful, that are far worse? How do we then remain strong? How do we continue to do our best? How do we take, we, we know all this, we know the value of meditation, we know the value of study, we know the value of, of all the, the spiritual actions. But what if we are going through difficult circumstances with the body, with some disease, with the terrible loss of a loved one and so forth? How do we then get ourselves up for meditation? Or if instead of hours of meditation, all we can do is offer a few minutes or moments of meditation? And, and do we know if that offering, how do we know if that offering has any value in our life at that point? You know, that's when we get shaken or can, our, our, our love, our realization gets tested at that point. Some years back, again in our Self-Realization magazine, there was an article by one of our members that we published that recounted the story of his wife's battle with cancer. And it was a story which was incredibly sad, it was moving, it was heartbreaking, it was uplifting, it was touching, it was all that all at the same time, life. And I thought to read a few excerpts from that story, that journey. And it starts out, love God no matter what. And this person wrote, these were the final words of my wife to our 18-month-old daughter. And he said these words perfectly summed up her attitude as she prepared to die. She loved God no matter what befell. No matter that she was only 37 and was losing a husband 
an infant daughter. No matter that cancer had devastated her body, despite her many months of unceasing struggle against it, no matter that she was now in constant pain, no matter, she loved God. And there's so much to this and their story, and I was thinking, oh, just to take out a few excerpts, I wonder if it's even appropriate, but hopefully these few will be helpful to us, and, and it seems to, whenever stories like this are told or shared, then it, it, it gives them renewed meaning and value, and they become like those candles of inspiration that help light the, the path for the rest of us that, that are, are privileged to share and join into to, uh, uh, someone's life like this. And so he continued, it was beautiful to see. And I was thinking, this is his wife. She's dying of cancer. But to him, she was ever more beautiful. And he said, it was beautiful to see how she constantly resisted self-pity and the thought, why does this have to happen to me? You know, I was thinking, oh, in, in her, she was helping her husband and family and loved ones also to bear with the situation because of her strength. It wasn't just for her e either. It was also for everybody around her. He said she put forth all her strength, facing her daily ordeal by using Gyanamata's prayer, Lord, change no circumstance of my life, change me. And he said, and this is especially for us in our subject tonight, he said she came to understand that her circumstances had one purpose, to help her learn to hold on to the consciousness of God no matter what outer condi conditions confronted her, health or sickness, comfort or pain, life or death. And then he shares a letter that his wife received from our president at the time, Sri Dayamada, who wrote to her saying, and I was thinking, you know, if any of you you know, in this moment, maybe are going through something similar like this or uh, this type of trial or something equally challenging, then as you hear these words, take them into your heart and soul. They're for you. They're for us. They're, they were a moment in time, but, but these words, they, they, they just stay in the ether. And, and if you're going through something right now, then listen to these words as if across time and space they're being said just to you. So Dayama wrote, Go on gently holding to your beautiful attitude of faith and courage, knowing that great progress and reward are yours. We are here to become united with God, and your soul is waxing in his light and beauty because of your faith in the midst of trial. And she said, Divine Mother and Guru Deva are pleased with you, dear one, and they are blessing you without measure. Just inwardly hold to them, resting in the thought of their love. It is an eternal love, even as is the love we share with other souls. And she ended and wrote, What peace and bliss fill the heart when we realize that life goes on and on, and that we are always close to those who are our own, and that awaiting us are ever greater heights of joy and God communion. And this person related that when his wife finally did pass, he said how the hospital room was just permeated with joy as she took her last breath. And if that wasn't enough, he said about an hour after his wife passed, he was still in her room at the hospital when he was summoned to the nurse's station to take a call that was coming in for him. 
And he said he wondered who it might be since he had not yet had time to phone anyone with the news of his wife's passing. He just was there by her side. <coughs> and he said that the phone call happened to be from Sri Dayamada, who said to him, I was just meditating and felt your dear wife's passing. You know, to, and, and, he, and then she says, she is with Master as we speak. <laughs> and is in great joy. And I was thinking, you know, oh, to get this kind of confirmation, but, but truly, I mean, I think we could say, well, I didn't know Sri Dayamada, and she didn't know me like she knew this person, and, you know, she knows us. <laughs> we know her. Especially those of us who feel have made this our path. This is our, we're part of this family. That's the most, that's the most incomprehensible thing almost. So, to go back to the beginning of that call from, from Ma to him, Ma's, Ma said, I was just meditating and felt your dear wife's passing. She is with Master as we speak and is in great joy. I want you to know that she had fulfilled Guruji's wishes through her life and especially during her illness. Do your best to tune in to that great joy that your wife is feeling as a result of her surrender to God and her guru. Master bless you and your daughter, dear one. And again, during those days, last days of her illness, she wasn't meditating, long meditations and all. Master was especially pleased. Those offerings that we heard last night, offering up our love, offering up our courage, any number of, of things. And there's so much in a story like this, it's so packed, but I, I, one thing I thought perhaps what makes it especially inspiring and useful is that it's not a story about some saint that lived centuries ago, or about some state of consciousness we you know, aspire to achieve in some galaxy far, far away, you know? <laughs> so, but it, it's a story about us on planet Earth. And it's about you, it's about me, it's about all of us. It's about our potential of what we are capable of. Master's own, his saints in the making. I remember Brother Prima Moy, another one of our beloved mentors that some of the monks uh, talk about from time to time, and who was my spiritual counselor up until, uh, during my years in the ashram up until his passing. And I was remembering one day we were walking together and talking about something, and at a certain point he, he tenderly, tenderly grabbed my arm, and then he looked at me, and he said, well, a saint you ain't. <laughs> What's so funny about that? <laughs> and then he paused. And he said, but a star you are, you know? And that was, that was actually a lot more than I was expecting. <laughs> or that I felt, you know, I deserved at that time to tell you the truth. So it was a good, that was a very good day. So, so again, the point is we are all master stars. Each one of us. And we're all God's little star. And our job is to let our light shine, to trust that light to trust ourselves, our ability, our courage, that if or when 
the time comes, no matter how dark the circumstances, no matter how long or difficult the fight, know that the Arjuna within us can and will win, will be victorious, no matter the obstacles we are facing or that might lie ahead. Our guru, our guru gave this inspiration once, which is entitled, Winning. And he says, and again, take these words deep within our hearts. He said, there is a way to conquer this world, to conquer nature and to conquer life with its poverty, disease, wars, and other troubles. We must learn this way to victory. He said, great leaders such as Napoleon, Genghis Khan, William the Conqueror, attained wide dominion over other men and lands, yet their victories were temporary. The victory that Jesus Christ attained is everlasting. How to achieve this permanent victory? You must start with yourself. You may think it is hopeless to try to conquer hatred and inspire mankind to Christ-like ways of love, but never was the need so great as now. Atheistic ideologies are battling to drive religion out. The world is marching on in a wild drama of existence. Trying to stop the raging storms, we seem no more than little ants swimming in the ocean. But our master said, do not minimize your power. The real victory consists in conquering yourself, as did Jesus Christ. His self-victory gave him power over all nature. And our guru goes on, learn how to use the psychology of victory. He said, some people advise, don't talk about failure at all, but that alone won't help. First, analyze your failure and its causes, benefit from the experience, and then dismiss all thought of it. Though he fail many times, the man or woman who keeps on striving, who is undefeated within, is a truly victorious person. No matter if the world considers him a failure, if he has not given up mentally, he is not defeated before the Lord. This truth I have learned from my contact with spirit. And our guru ends and says, the greater your troubles, the greater the chance you have to show the Lord that you are a spiritual Napoleon, a spiritual Genghis Khan, a conqueror of yourself. There are so many imperfections within us to be surmounted. But he who becomes master of himself is a real conqueror. So you must strive to do what I am doing, constantly winning within myself. And in this inner victory, I find the whole world at my command. Whatever life demands of you, do it to the best of your ability. By discrimination, by right action, learn to conquer every obstacle and attain self-mastery. So why don't we close our eyes for a few moments and let me ask that original question again and see what response we feel within this time, okay? Ready? Here we go. Are we letting life circumstances control us? What do we feel this time? Do we perhaps feel a little or even a lot more courageous, more confident? which, and I suggest that we do, and which is proof of the mere vibration of our guru's words, these teachings inspiring us, reminding us that we can control, if not always those circumstances, at least our reaction to them. Now relax again and open your eyes. 
and see the world differently. This is what our guru and his teachings does. He gives us sight. He helps us see ourselves and the world differently as it really is. You know, we started with the Mahabharata and covered only the first couple of days of that epic war. And where we left off, as mentioned, there are still many more days ahead. But at the conclusion of that dialogue between the soul and spirit, inspiring us likewise not to give up, to be courageous and have courage and face our inevitable challenges ahead, the Lord Krishna ended essentially with the following words to Arjuna. Words that the Lord is addressing likewise to each one of us as well. So speaking again to the Arjuna, in each one of us, the Lord says, Nay, but once more take my last word, my utmost meaning half. Precious thou art to me, right well beloved. Listen, I tell thee for thy comfort this. Give me thy heart, adore me, serve me, cling in faith and love and reverence to me. So shalt thou come to me, I promise true for thou art sweet to me. And let go those rites and writ duties. Fly to me alone. Make me thy single refuge. I will free thy soul from all its sins. And the Lord Krishna ends, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. That's how he ends his discourse, basically. There's a war going on. <laughs> but he's saying, be of good cheer. I am always in the chariot of your life. And Jesus also used those same four words, be of good cheer, many times when talking to his devotees, coincidentally. And on one particular occasion, he said similarly, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And his only mission, and the mission of our guru and all the great ones, is to help us likewise do the same. For now, Jai Guru, and victory to all of us. <laughs>